You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I am home today and thank goodness i'm home i'm prepping i'm getting a lot of stuff together here for hunting season and i'm tracking a few big bucks on my own property and i'm I'm hopeful this season i have a low probability of kill this year and you know that's that's okay for me i do suspect i'll have some interactions with one particular deer and these are older age class deer in an area that you know don't typically produce that type of quality and so I'm a little excited, you know, antler wise, we're not talking anything ginormous, but age wise, you know, they're in the caliber for me. So I'm a bit excited. Uh, other housekeeping things is I am, and I will over the next couple of weeks, release the habitat day on my property in July. I've set a price. I've got, I guess, guest speakers, and we're going to do, you know, on site, I'm going to show you how to build bedding areas. I'm going to have a pictorial of my entire property layout, almost like you're going to build the property from scratch. This is going to be great for you that decide, you know, that you need more information. You want to make a change and you want to have the best hunting property in your particular area. I'm going to show you how to make a very hard to hunt property easier, how to design each element of your property so it flows and connects correctly and how you execute in that entire equation. I'm really excited about this. I think this is far beyond other offerings of any other consultant out there. And I think this will get people far, far, far ahead uh, as compared. I hunt really tough areas. I've been extremely successful on 46 acres and I'm doing things a lot different from everybody else. And I think that'll be a staple and a good thing for you to move forward with. So please get a hold of me for that. If you've already gotten a hold of me, get a hold of me again. I will put you on the schedule for that. I only plan on doing one class at this point. And I'm going to try to limit it to 10 or 12 people so the speaking is a little bit you know, more engaging, etc. Beyond that, if there's more people, I'll figure out a different date, etc. But that's what I want to limit to. There will be other clients there. So you can talk to other people that have done this implementation work that do understand what it takes. And, you know, it'll be a chance to build a little community around this, this event. All right. So beyond that, we're going to get into our technical hunting series. And my obviously tactical hunting guy, Steve Shirk, is going to be the one to lead this off. But we'll have other folks along the way that are going to support this. The goal out of this is to take you all to the next level. It's about execution at this phase. 
You should have done the work. Now you're trying to make and make plays and execute. And that's that's hard. And uh, we're going to use Steve's experience and other guests that we're going to have coming on to, to really kind of dive into maybe the nitty gritty. Hey, Steve, are you on the line? Yes, sir. I'm right here. Okay. So you probably heard my intro. So, um, you know, you kind of know what this series is about. And I just want to briefly just mention, you know, we had a chance to actually physically meet recently myself and a bunch of buddies. We came down to do a, a day and uh, a life of Steve Shirk, essentially. We got to see how you <laughs> scout and look at areas. And I just wanted to kind of quickly talk about that and uh, the benefits to to me. And I had a great time. It was great to meet you of course, but it was better to learn, you know, from you. And I think I got a lot out of that day. And I just wanted you to talk briefly, maybe about your experience. Yeah, well, definitely. Same back to you. Um, I had a great time finally meeting you, um, along with all those other guys. Um, we just, it was, I kind of had no clue, uh, who might even be coming. You said, you know, just a group of guys and I didn't know what to expect, but you know, it was just great to, uh, be around so many other you know real passionate deer hunters and i thought everyone was engaged really well um you know we went over uh basically pretty much the between how i scout and how i hunt and uh you know weather scenarios um basically just tried to show everything you know that i do in kind of like a half day which is easier said than or harder or whatever i want to say easier said than done but um Overall, like, you know, I just thought it went really well. Um, I'm glad that it sounds like you guys learned from it. I know, you know, some of the guys, uh, you know, might not really, you know, be much for, you know, big woods, public land hunters. But I think uh, overall, I mean, deer are deer. And even if uh, you're someone that's just moving into uh, managing your own property and, you know, doing things that way, I think uh, it all comes down to, we're really all in the same league and I feel that, you know, after the end of the day, we could all relate to different things. And um, I thought we all connected when it was all said and done. Yeah. And I had a lot of takeaways from that personally uh, beyond that. It was nice to have a group of guys that a lot of these guys are, are pretty serious hunters. You know, they've killed substantial deer, you know, some of them world-class deer. And then of course, you know, uh, we all do different things. Some, some are in different fields. Obviously I'm in the, the business of deer and so are you. So let's, um, and I, I, the reason I bring that up is I want people to consider doing things with groups, uh, learning, uh, you know, creating this community of learning and then connecting with the right people to kind of build a better understanding and leveraging, you know, expertise to save time. This is all about time saver. Yep. Life is short. So we want to make sure that we, we, we skip ahead as quick as possible so we don't have to have years and years and years of learning. Although sometimes that pain is is, uh, is beneficial. Uh, it's not always uh, most supportive to, to getting to the, the end goal a lot quicker. So really in this podcast series, what I want to get into is technical hunting. And I want to have the listeners understand, you know, whether it's technology, uh, its approach, it's specific scenarios, you know, things that make your style and strategy. When, when Steve Shirk is hunting and he's going after a particular deer, how, how is he approaching a scenario? And we, we had chances to, to discuss that when we were on site with you. But I think today I want to get into specifics and, mm -hmm. you know, getting into the details and the nitty gritty of approach, getting into a stand location, 
Um, even types of equipment that you're using and why. Um, maybe you're setting stands up, you're bringing stands in with you, you're dropping stands. Um, just things that you have been focused on right now, getting prepped for season, because I think people want to know, okay, I'm, I'm yep. ready to execute. What do I need to do? Yeah, well, uh, you're definitely talking to me at the right time because our season starts Saturday. Um, <clears throat> I do got my eye on a few different deer. Uh, one individual deer um, is a big nine point. Um, I've got about three years of history with him. Um, last year, you know, I had I had you know a lot of intel and I had some pretty good setups and you know I knew of his whereabouts. But I think the problem with last year is um, I think I put too much pressure on him early in the season and, uh, it just seemed like, you know, he got more nocturnal, less patternable and just, you know, way more unpredictable. But so what I did this year, um, and I should have done it in the past was I've only cell cammed that area, which I mean, and you saw when you were here, like, I don't, I can't just do that anywhere. Fortunately, um, I have enough cell reception in this area this deer lives that I can keep pretty good tabs on them. And it's just amazing the difference that that has made already. Like I haven't even been in this area at all in like a couple months. I've completely stayed out and I'm just going by what these cell cameras are showing me. But like in the past, looking through yesterday in the past eight days, I've got this deer on camera five times out of eight days, all evening or all evening time frames from like 5.30 to, you know, 7 o'clock p.m. Um, and coming out of the same bedding area. And I really feel like even, you know, even if I just do a quick camera check, like may not have an impact, but I was trying to be pretty careful last year. But just seems like me completely staying out of that area, you know, for months and just relying on these cell cameras like this year, looks extremely patternable and i mean our season starts saturday if if unfortunately i'm probably not going to get to hunt as much as i want early in the season but then again i mean if i hunt this year two or three times early in the season that just that given amount of pressure in that area might be enough to kind of take them off so i'm hoping and praying if the good lord's willing and a suit to on um, first we will get an opportunity at them. So I want to kind of dig into this deer specifically, and I want to talk about terrain features. I want to talk about mm-hmm. suspiciously where you think he's betting, and I want to talk yep. about approach. So maybe break down kind of the setting a little bit. Obviously, you're dealing with a, a lot of homogenous areas, big woods, yep. but there are some variations in the in those vegetation types. So maybe a little bit about yep. that, and then how he's using terrain and how you're capturing imagery on him. Because five pictures in the past eight days, I mean, that's that's good data. It's- yeah, I mean, I'm, I I did not expect it to be that good. But so this deer, he, he beds way on top of a mountain. There's a knuckle up there. Um, and he kind of beds on the, on the edges of that knuckle. So another thing is these knuckle-type features. And basically what a knuckle is, sometimes at the top of a mountain, you'll have just like a knob, like one last small, you know, little knob right at the top, just like a cap. And that's literally where he's betting. But um, there's extremely good cover up there on that knuckle. There's, uh, you know, when we did our classes and when you came, um, you know, you can see how a lot of these betting areas, you know, have very high stem count, a lot of browse. 
that's very similar uh, to what you saw in some of those other areas. So he's got a ton of browse, ton of cover in there. Plus, with that knuckle feature, if he wants to, you know, be on a leeward side you know, of that knuckle, I mean, it's very easy for him to adjust in any different wind direction. And in in the past week, when I've been getting these pictures, I've monitored the wind um, and. He's coming from that knuckle no matter what the wind direction is, but that's the advantage of that spot is he can still have that leeward wind advantage if he wants because he can move to one side of the knuckle, you know, very easily and, you know, pretty quick amount of time. And uh, another, another real, you know, big advantage I have in this situation is I'm about... I'm going to set up about a hundred yards from, from this knuckle where he's betting. And there's a, there's a lone white Oak that's just dropping acorns. Like it's just like marbles under that tree. (laughs) And it's just like the most ideal setup. I mean, there's, there's other white Oaks further down the Ridge, but there's, this is like this lone one that is just, it's a no brainer. Like that deer has been eating browse all day in I mean, yeah, that's a good food source, but we all know, you know, this time of year, you can't beat acorns. So he's coming into that lone white oak. That's the first one he's hitting. Um, and where I think I screwed up a little bit on this camera placement is it's, it's really, there's like, there's an opening in this spot. It's pretty thick and, you know, on this ridge where I'm set up and I have the camera centered right in this opening and he rarely comes out into the center of the opening deep acorns. He stays all along the edge of that opening near the cover. And I think I honestly get more pictures of him if the camera was pointed more towards the cover, maybe to one end or the other than the center. Cause whenever I get a picture of him, I'm barely getting a picture of him. Like he's just barely in the camera's view. Cause still in, in the daytime, he doesn't want to come into that wide open pocket. But I'm still getting enough intel, luckily, that, I mean, that's, for, given the, the terrain I hunt, the area I hunt, like, if I'm getting a buck in a spot maybe a couple times a week, like, that gets me pretty excited. But in this past eight days, to get him that many times in one single spot, plus plus you have to have, also have to factor in talking time frame. It's not like he could show up at any time of day. It's all been in the span of an hour and a half which that, what it is, is when he gets up out of that bed, that's the first thing on his mind is he's hitting that white oak. So if all goes well, um, I got, looks like I got a marginal wind. Um, I saying east to northeast. I'd, I'd prefer, you know, something a little bit different, but I still think, I think I'm okay at least. And plus given the fact that it doesn't look like heavy winds or a front coming through, um, I think where I'll have an advantage is there'll be a thermal pole because I'm just going to hunt it in the evening. I'm probably not even going to get in there super early just for the fact that I don't want to get in there with that somewhat marginal wind. I kind of want to wait till that wind dies down. And then those thermals, because I'm set up below him, those thermals should start dropping in the evening. And I, then I should have a big time advantage with, uh, with my scent. So, I mean, I'm real excited. Um, I've been in these situations before. You, there's no guarantee. I mean, that, that's just deer hunting. But, you know, if the good Lord's willing and he wants to bless me, I, I feel like I've done all I could do, to say the least. Yeah, no, this is great and a great story. And I, I like the fact that you've pinpointed at least a food source that is a driving factor, which is short-lived, right? That, yep. that, that white oak won't 
withstand, you know, yep. uh, too much more at this point, at least it relates to, you know, seed droppage. And then, yep. you know, of course, obviously the consumption value. Now, let me ask you another question. Are there does in that area? The does are not right there. The does are down lower where there's more white oak trees. Like there's the, the buck is bedding in this prime spot. Um, and I get an occasional dome. I get more occasional doe at night more than anything there. But I'm getting a lot of doe activity further down in the valley, like on the south face of this ridge where there's way more white oaks. The does are sticking closer to that heavy amount where it's just, you know, two, 300 yards of just acorns like marbles versus, like I said, this first white oak near where that buck is bedding. It's just that's that's the the money spot as of right now. But you did bring up a great point: is that white oak is only going to last so long. And one one situation I have that isn't good is some days the bears get in there pretty early. And I think that has an effect on him. Um, it, it's almost as if he can smell if the, or notice as if the bears have been there before him. I think. He also knows that if the bears were there before him, there's not going to be many acorns left. Um, and I, I also, I've noticed this throughout my whole hunting career that I'm going to say that deer, you know, freaked out by bears, but they really don't like to be feeding like side by side. So if the bears are in there heavy while I'm there, I'm probably going to be screwed, but it has tapered off some lately. I think the bears are focusing more on the bigger pockets yeah. versus like oaks so like i said if all goes well um you know this is just the prime spot and it's just it's also just the situation like i mean yeah i've done some good things and you know learned a lot about this deer uh, he betted in this spot last year despite this oak tree you know being there but having that oak tree dropping those acorns is really the biggest key to narrowing down where that buck is gonna get up and go right after he leaves that bed what from the place that you're hunting this deer is it is it on a shelf uh is it in a slowly degraded area but it's it's not significantly steep at that particular point what's the terrain like so i'm just below that knuckle and then it turns into a ridge where that knuckle is there's there's three different ridges that come off that kind of like a turkey foot pattern um and but the only one of the the only ridge that has white oak trees because we didn't get much for red oaks this year. Um, so if you're not in the, you know, dominant white oak areas, you're really not in the acorn. So only the one ridge has a lot of white oaks on it, which is, you know, 200 yards behind me, there's way more white oaks. Um, but it's just a slight grade coming down this ridge, you know, from where he's batting, you know, he's going to be above me. I'm going to be down the ridge further. Uh, like I said, just at that first white oak that's dropping acorns. Um, luckily, like I said, too, having that cell camera in there and me not ever going in there for months, I'm telling you, it's such a huge advantage. Um, you know, I know a lot of people might say that's unethical, and I don't I don't think we need to go down that rabbit hole today, but I will say, at least for me, like if, if I wasn't selling that spot, it would, it would still be not even half as good as you know, is the situation that I'm in. Just the fact that that deer has no clue that I'm keeping tabs on him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all interesting and it's an interesting scenario and it's nice that you have the history here and, and it's playing out the way it may play out. And, and, you know, like you said, I mean, 
there's a chance to this that, you know, things don't work. So you brought yep. up another point about, you know, uh, food sources surrounding this area and then resident deer population and then access. So I'm thinking, you know, how do you get the into this location? Like, what is your, yep. your, your strategic execution aspect of this from an access standpoint that evades other deer? Because we, we all know that, you know, it creates a domino effect sometimes. Yes. And then, no, we, then we get into an area and we're selecting a spot. And I kind of want to know how you get to the area. And then, you know, you don't have a hung stand in there, I'm assuming. Yes. No, there's no stand at all. Um, and that's a great point you brought up because how I would normally um, access the area um, would be a potential hazard as far as, you know, me not spooking the steer because um, before I didn't have uh, – even though I didn't have a cell or a camera on this oak tree, I had a camera not real far from there um, last year. And one thing I was noticing is days that I would go into the spot and my normal access route, which is just, there's just an old, uh, like old skitter trail when it was logged long, long time ago um, that I would follow in because one thing about those skitter trails is they're very quiet to walk. Um, and you can just, you can access way, way much smoother but what i was noticing was the days that i would walk in on that skitter trail occasionally on on my one camera i'd get a buck running which i could tell that what some of these bucks are doing is they're actually watching they're able to see you know that skitter trail that that a lot of people come in on i'm not saying it's a highly pressured area probably me more than anything so um i learned a lot from that experience so I have to come in a much harder way, a longer way. You know, it could be, it should be a 10 minute walk. Now it's going to be about a 40 minute walk, but I have to come in from the complete bottom of the, the valley, work my way up the ridge. That way I'm staying away from, from all the bedding areas. Um, you know, cause all these deer, even, even the does, like everything's bedding up high and working their way down. Um, so now the does are bedding a little bit lower though, but the overall point is, is I have to come in the complete opposite way to not risk, uh, bumping any bucks or any deer at all in that, you know, that higher elevation bed. Because just like you said, if I bump, not, not the buck I'm hunting, but I bump anything up in that area. I mean, there's going to be alarms going off like crazy and you know, my hunt's going to be ruined. So, yeah, I don't have a stand in there. Um, I'm going to bring in a, a climbing stand, and then what I'm going to do is, even if I don't have success opening night, I'm not going to even leave the climber there. Um, I'm just going to keep taking it in and out. I mean, it's a it's a huge pain to do that, but I don't want that deer to have any sense that it's being hunted. I mean, he's going to get my scent probably that first night if he goes by where I was set up some, but just having that stand not there and I'll, I'll carry it in every time just for the fact that I don't want this deer to be slightly on edge at all. If I have to hunt him, you know, multiple evenings. Yeah, that's really interesting. And two things that just kind of popped into my mind, you know, the specific scenario where, you know, some people that are hunting public land and this is obviously a risk is, you know, dropping a standoff at some interval in between. So you're not getting as tired, et cetera. Staying yep. in shape, obviously, Steve, you're in great shape, right? This is what you do on the daily. So, you know, yep. and, and and also, you know, when you're thinking about accessing that location specifically, thinking about the wind throughout that process, because, you know, in these terrain settings, you may get an open area that would have, you know, a slightly different, you know, wind 
uh, versus something that's maybe a little bit more closed or canopied area. And then, you know, recognize that, you know, there's terrain features that deflect wind. And so thinking about the wind throughout that travel corridor, you know, that you're eventually getting to, to this location. And then to your last point, which I think is extremely critical for folks is, you know, not just the ground scent, but any scent that's left period in that particular area and the, you know, the tip off value and, and educating these deer enough in that one moment, right? They've been pretty much, I'd say human free for some period of time. Yep. Then all of a sudden, you know, you create this, you know, human scent, you know, in this area. And it's, it's most physically, you know, at the locations that you stand and the things that you touch. And so, you know, the life cycle of that scent, meaning, you know, the duration that it, you know, sits there and perpetrates that area, creates that education piece of it, which really yep. becomes distracting, you know, for your next time. And so it's like one of these scenarios where Steve's like, I'm going in, it's a, not a one and done deal, but your chances go down a little bit because of just that, you know, that intrusion factor in this equation. Yep. And another point you kind of touched on this that I want to bring up is like some people might say, you know, maybe even wait a little bit longer or, you know, maybe more better weather or uh, wait till after rain. But what I am most concerned about is this oak tree losing acorns because we actually, it's a little bit early this year. I don't know why, but I'd say right now, 80% of the acorns are down. So this oak tree is probably not going to last more than a couple more weeks at the most. Not just that deer eating it. There's other deer coming in occasionally. The bears, like I said, anytime bears come in, they wipe them right out. So the way I look at it is I'm going to go in there early, and if I burn this spot out in two or three sits, so be it. Because it, even though I don't think this deer is going to change his, his batting area, but where he goes after he leaves the bedding area, I think it's going to definitely change once this oak tree, you know, quits dropping acorns or whatever has been dropped has been cleaned up. So I look at it like hit it hard, swing for the fence early in the spot because it's not going to last that long. So I think you have to keep those little things in mind. Like don't wait till the rut in some of these situations or that first, you know, mid-October cold front. Like I know the, the time frame of this spot it's going to be very short, you know, the, the, and I'm probably just catching the tail end of before this pattern changes. Yeah. And I think that's important. <clears throat> it's seasonality of this, you know, the, of your decision, you know, in my scenario right now, I've got two particular bucks and actually this is crazy. A buck that I thought died because he had an antler, uh, an antler pegged him in the eye. I thought he, wow. I thought, I thought he passed away. I actually think I just got him on camera. He's a five year old wow. and he is actually hanging with the target deer that I, I ended up not shooting last year because he dropped early. And so all these little nuances, dynamics of uh, situational relationships and looking at like there are large bucks in this scenario sticking together in cadence and movement. Now, one's a little more aggressive than the other one. I can just tell it in the sequence that they move. So it's really kind of, you know, the technical piece of this is figuring out like these small elements of decision making. And so yep. one of the things that I'm doing is I'm mapping out, you know, the location that I got that deer at. I'm walking back to when I think its bedding interval was, is, you know, where it bedded, how long it was in that area based on some of the intel I have. And then kind of drawing a map and figuring, okay, this is the distance of travel. This is the speed of travel. And kind of walking through that particular scenario. And it's all guesswork. But it gives me some, I guess I'll say, feelings of 
you know, certainty, or, you know, I feel like I have a good decision to make in this scenario. Well, the other piece of it, my dear, because I don't have terrain features in this particular area that are significant, they're very consistent on when they bed in those particular areas. And so, you know, some of these terrain features, depending on how they're cut or they're open, you know, you'll start to learn or glean from, you know, the specifics like this deer has a tendency during these wind conditions. And remember, you know, wind conditions are all specific, right? Because a front could come through and it could be a north wind, but it's it's actually not a north wind in your particular area. So you've got to be really like, you've got to diagnose things at a very finite level before you say, okay, this condition is exactly to this condition a week before. And I've killed deer based on those circumstances. But, you know, to your point earlier, Steve, is, you know, a marginal wind could be a great opportunity for you and the deer in that scenario where it's on the hairy edge of success, but it's still the hairy edge. And are you willing to push it based on all those other factors? And it's just thinking a little bit more about how they move, how frequently they, they leave an area. You know, what are they surrounding themselves with? Sometimes I've seen big bucks play off the does. And so even yep. in these early season scenarios, which, you know, they're like, well, this is not the rut. Well, you know, we've seen, you know, I've been on camera goofing around with some of my buddies and even clients and saying, oh, yeah, the run is on because you'll get a picture of a, you know, two year old chasing does for the field or, sure. you know, they're just establishing kind of that social hierarchy and, and relationship. And I think I think that plays into this whole scenario. So you can fo- focus on weather and the social dynamic piece of it. And you just have to limit, you know, play like a ghost and, and not create this volume intrusion that is so significantly harmful to the hopeful outcome which in this case you know we're hoping you know you have success and i i'll let me just throw this out because i didn't jink roxy rocky burris who's on this podcast and he shot a monster and i said <laughs> you know I, I i totally brought up the point like yeah man like you know cheering you on like good luck he, and, and i said something goofy and he's like oh man you just jinx me and i'm just like <laughs> you know i think you have a backup plan and that, this is the point that i wanted to get to next is okay we're getting intel you've got a backup plan because most guys yep. do and uh people that need to be successful want to have a few big bucks on the wall they've got a plan b so there's a plan yep. b for you and we haven't talked about it what is your plan b yep so my plan b like if i hunt this deer in this spot probably only the first week you know two three times if i'm lucky um I'll be completely done with that spot. And I'm actually going to not hunt near his bedding. I'll, I'll probably wait until that first like mid October front, or it might happen late October, but I'm just going to back off on that deer until I think that deer is going to shift more into like a rut mode. And then I'm just going to focus on where I know that pocketed goes are, you know, down further, you know, lower on the ridge. Like, even if I pressure that deer early and he's on to me, then if I back off for a couple weeks and I hunt that deer, you know, I'm not saying a completely different area, but enough of a difference where like that deer is not going to feel that much uh, pressure or that much concern knowing, okay, he had someone hunt him for a few times near his, his bedding, but he's not just going to leave and go five miles away. You know, he's still going to, relate to his main home area he might just be bad and you know somewhat differently he might be more nocturnal but no matter what he's gonna rot and he's gonna rot in that area so even if i don't get pictures of him like in the daytime or you know right now i'm kind of basing my hunt more off the pictures i'm getting but i know come time or tell for sure that once we get later in october he is going to be looking for whatever does are in his home area. And 
I've been keeping tabs on those does. Um, I got the stand sites already picked out. I don't have stands up. Uh, I'm literally going to hunt around those does, just use them as bait. And, you know, it, once again, easier said than done, but he's going to show up in, in that area because he's the dominant buck. Um, he's going to do most of the breeding, especially those are the does closest to his core area. It's just a matter of, you know, when he's going to break out of this mode and start daylighting more down in that area. And let me ask you this question, and you hear a lot of conversation about this. Would you hunt a deer this time of year in the mornings based on some of the intel that you're seeing from the camera data? I would, but it would also depend on the setup. I think it depends on how far that deer is traveling from food to bedding. Um, like I think this deer would be much harder to hunt in the morning because the food is very close to where he's bedding versus like if you know like a deer might have a half mile, I've seen them go one or two miles from food to bed. Like I think there's more of a gap and more room to take advantage of, you know, because he's a lot of people, you know, would be surprised that a lot of, you know, between my cameras and just own hunting experience, like a lot of these deer are already back in their bedding areas, even before daylight or, you know, pretty close, you know, right about as it's getting daylight, you know, they're getting right near that bedroom. Like, so that gap of, of travel is, is the biggest concern for me. If it's a good, if it's a good distance and you feel that you can, you know, slip in and not that deer as he's coming from that food source, I, I would totally agree. And, you know, I think you could hunt bedding in the morning in that situation or, more like on the edge of it as that deer's approaching it. But if it's close to that food source, I think it's a huge gamble just for the fact that, you know, you're not going to have much room for air, you know, trying to slip in between or even getting in that bedding area. If that bedding area is super close to that food source, he could be already in there a couple hours before daylight or maybe even sooner. Yeah. I'm going to quickly bring up a quick scenario, Steve. And uh, this is just kind of one of the examples that I have is, you know, I see, uh, this is the thing I pay the most attention to right now. And this is for, you know, mature deer, or just deer that I'm trying to monitor their movement on the property. I'm looking at, you know, what areas are they using based on my trail cameras? How frequently are they in those areas and the timeline? So thinking about, you know, if they're eating within the areas and they're sitting and moving and digesting and getting up and eating again, you know, they're eating in multiple increments during that time period. They don't consume an entire meal you know, like we do, right? We sit down and we eat yep. dinner. They eat it over a period of time. So the yep. idea that, you know, they feed, you know, five times a day in a 24-hour period is, is actually incorrect. They feed in multiple mm-hmm. increments throughout the day. It's a matter of the food value that shifts movement. So just yep. a scenario that I've experienced where I've tried to hunt mornings. I've gotten really close to an area where I think the deer is going to end up. And I've used, you know, um, I, I guess, you know, it was a storm, uh, an impending storm that they may delay, you know, their, their entry into a bedding area because of, you know, they got to consume a little bit more food in a, you know, a, a better prefer- preferential area for food. You know, I've, I've yep. inserted myself in those equation and it's all time and place. I got caught in the tree. Went, I went after this giant buck and uh, the storm system was supposed to delay. Well, you know, me just being anxious and wanting to get after this deer because I knew I had a short window to kill him. Um, I said, you know what? It's close enough. You know, I was hoping it was going to be delayed an hour in the morning, but it sped up a half an hour. And that, that was a huge difference. As I'm climbing that tree, all of a sudden this, this giant buck 
And, you know, giant to me was in the 130s, but it was an incredible deer in my area. Um, older age class deer comes right in, and I'm literally climbing up the tree as the, <laughs> as the lightning in the background is going off, and I can see the, the deer right in front of me. And I'm like, he's wow. 40 yards. And I'm on the other side of the tree, and I'm like, well, first off, it's too dark. You know, the cloud cover impacted my ability to even, you know, execute when sunrise happened. And so there were multiple you know, sequences, events that led to the failure of that. And if I was a little more patient, a little more considerate of, you know, the precipitation and the weather front coming, very, be very, you know, timely of diagnosing when to yep. attack this deer. I may have killed him, but I might, may have not gone after him. Guess what happened to that deer? He kicked over the neighbor. Neighbor killed him two weeks later, never came back oh. to an area. And, and wow. so that was a scenario where that one mistake, that was the only deer I was able to go after. I didn't have any deer of that age, class, or caliber. He was a five-year-old, which I believe is a five-year-old, and that was my one shot. It was a one-and-done deal. One hunt, it was over. So I'm just suggesting if you are this aggressive and you do not have options, the outcome is such where it may be devastating and it may benefit somebody else. And good for the other hunter, but, you know, that was my goal. And, and obviously I attempted I saw the deer, maybe that's a win, but in that scenario, I was going to kill. So you have to be very tactical in these scenarios. And this is the technical hunting piece of this that my point was trying to get across is, you know, the precision matters. Every step matters and um, yep. every thought, and we've kind of described some of the thought process in this equation. And you can overcomplicate this. I mean, you you and I know that we probably do that a little too often. <laughs> sure. So, um, and then another thing too, like, kind of in my favor is, I mean, this isn't the only good deer I have located. I mean, I got hundreds of thousands of acres, you know, you know, where I'm hunting. I know not everyone is blessed to be in that kind of position, but you know, if you only have one good deer, you know, and a small amount of ground to hunt that deer, I think you got to play it more safe and be more precise. But in my case, if I do ruin my chances with this deer out of over hunting him, I mean, I have a lot more options, a lot more areas to hunt. So I feel like I can I can take advantage of being more aggressive in the situation I'm in. Yeah, that's great. All right, Steve, um, last question, and I'm just asking you some random stuff and we're done here. The equipment, clothing, equipment, uh, anything along those lines that you think really makes a difference that's going to propel you this season? Um, you know, not so much early. I think my style more than anything, like, you know, I love being a mobile hunter. Uh, I don't, I don't do a lot of fixed stand hunting. Uh, I just think the more, the more stealthy I am, the more aggressive I am as far as moving around and being unpredictable to, to deer as well. Like that's one thing about mobile hunting is I can bounce from tree to tree. Sometimes I've even done that on, you know, on one particular morning, I might, you know, wind doesn't seem right, or, uh, you know, I might climb a tree in the dark and not feel that confident with the wind shifting or the amount of cover. There might have been cover there a week ago and all the leaf covers down. Like, there's so many advantages to that mobile style that, you know, have really helped me in a lot of ways. Um, but as far as what I use, I mean, there's really nothing when it comes to spending. Um I do think one of one of the biggest things as far as any equipment or tool that's given me success um, has been I've had a ton of luck with blind grunting, particularly from late, well, mid-October, late October. Like, I've killed a lot of bucks, you know, just blind grunting, putting a grunt all in my, in my pocket and 
know, I'll grunt very often, you know, every five or 10 minutes. And some people's minds and, and maybe in certain areas like that might be overdoing it. But when these deer are cruising and putting on ground, you could have a buck, you know, down over a bench at times. He can't hear you or he's down in the valley. And there's days they're covering so much ground that if you're not grunting that often, you're not, you're not reaching out to these deer as they're passing by. Um, the blind grunting, you know, and, you know, me carrying a grunt call time of year, like that's just, that's probably been the one tool, you know, other than trail cameras that has had a huge impact, you know, on the times of my success. But, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not someone that has the most expensive gear. You know, I have, um, you know, a lot of my camos pretty, pretty well worn out. You know, I'm more of an old school kind of cheap when it comes to, you know, different gear, but <laughs> my style and my approach and my effort, um, that's where I think, uh, I point my success to. Yeah. It's sometimes not about the gear. It's about like, in this case, the strategy and the stealthiness, you could have an yep. old climber that was quiet as a mouse and that might be, you know, the best thing for you. Um, just a quick question. And this is a, a, a random, but related, uh, when it comes to your grunt tube itself, do you want tonally something that sounds more mature or something that's a little less mature, at least in tone? Like, is the tonal a little deeper in, in sound output or is it, is it, is it a little lighter, um, not as aggressive? Yeah, my, my grunt call, um, what, you know, I, I use various ones, mostly just Quaker Boy grunt calls because um, I used to work for Quaker Boy, not, not really trying to promote them or anything, just saying. But sure. um I prefer kind of something like in between, like a lot of times, you know, whether it makes a difference or not, and this could just be my own opinion. Sometimes I think too young of a buck isn't enough to, to get, you know, another mature deer, you know, interested. I think sometimes if he, if he thinks that's a year and a half old buck, he might be like, I also don't think, you know, if, if you sound too mature, maybe a little too aggressive or, you know, cause I guess my point is like, I'm, I want to keep it as natural and as well as like, I want, I want to also make that buck interested. So I always feel like if, it, if when the more dominant deer in that area uh, knows, you know, another mature deer is coming through. Um, I think that when he's going to be inclined to definitely check things out on the, you know, an older buck sound, you know, mature, a little bit deeper, uh, you know, raspier grunt. But other than that, I mean, I, I don't really know if it, if it honestly, you know, if it honestly matters, uh, just, you know, my opinion, but whatever, whatever I've done in the past, um, like I said, grunting often, uh, you know, given the time of year and everything. And, you know, when I grunt, it's pretty loud, short grunts, uh, multiple directions. Um, it's, it's just been phenomenal, you know, the amount of success I've had. But I will also say there's been several times where it burnt me. I mean, it, it's led me to see a deer, but nine times out of ten, they'll come in downwind, so that's the gamble. But given the area I hunt, the terrain, and just the wide expansion of so much area, like, you're doing whatever you can to try to intercept these deer as they're traveling. And a lot of times you're in the right area, but it's so hard to get in their path because there's just so much room to roam. So any way that you can draw something to your location. I mean, by all means, that's, that's what you need to be trying to do, you know, where I hunt. 
Okay, that's great. And you got a little choppy there for a second, but you said you're grunting it. You know, what time of year is you, you tend to grunt a little bit more than, than other times? Uh, it would be mid to late October is when I've had the most success doing that. Like right now, probably not even going to do any grunting. Um, not saying you couldn't either, but I'm confident enough in my setups. Like I'm hunting, I'm hunting a spot where a buck is coming, you know, pretty consistently. I'm expecting that deer to come versus like, you know, once we get closer to the rut and these deer start cruising and searching for that first hot doe, like, yeah, okay, they're moving more, but they're not always taking the same routes. He could be a bench below uh, on the backside of the ridge. Like it's, you definitely, you know, want to be calling at those times because it's so hard to always figure out exactly what route they're going to take. Plus, once you get closer to the rut, that's when they start to get more aggressive and more interested in what other bucks are in their area. And, and some bleating too can even be good as well, but I've had a lot of luck just grunting. So it's going to be that mid to late October period when I'm doing it the most. Awesome. All right, Steve, I think we're going to end there. I think there was quite a bit in this podcast and I, I think uh, it was a good conversation. Like I said, I hope folks get a chance to do that scouting with you. If, if you have not considered that, Please do. I learned a lot from it. You know, there were some really big buck killers at part of this group, and we were all in that learning phase. There was a lot of exchange. You know, I tried not to talk too much, Steve, but sometimes I have to <laughs> open my mouth every now and again. But uh, I, 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 I appreciated that experience, and I think more folks should do things like that. And uh, I, I'm sure you know we'll uh, we'll talk again about that kind of stuff. But um, I'm excited for your hunting season. Uh, I'm sure that I'll get a follow up a call from you about the success that you're going to have. So I, uh, I'm excited for you. Well, thanks a lot. And, uh, you know, just to touch on that, um, especially with what you're doing, I would totally recommend, um, you know, people reaching out to you and joining your class that you're going to have this following summer. Like I always get people, cause I've been doing this, you know, for several years, like you can read, you can listen, but when you see something hands-on and you get to actually stand in that environment and picture it yourself, like there's really no better learning experience than that. So um, just a great way to educate people, a great way to meet people, and, you know, it's just a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see, uh, you know, you getting involved in that and sharing your knowledge. And then secondly, you know, I know you're going to be hunting hard this season and you know, it's literally right in front of us. So best of luck to you. Uh, I want to wish everyone good luck and, you know, more importantly to have a safe season. So uh, just hope it goes well for everyone. I'm so excited that it's pretty much almost here. So thanks a lot for having me. All right, Steve, we'll talk again soon, man. Thanks, buddy. See ya. You're welcome. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.